Well, hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of In With The Old. We're a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. We have a really exciting episode today, something new, something unique. And to introduce both that topic and our special guest, I want to kick it over to my co-host, Dr. Tim Howe. Dr. Tim, how are you doing today? Hey, Dr. Brian, I am doing very well, and uh, I'm incredibly excited today because of our special guest. Uh, we have Dr. Richard Everbeck, who's joining us for the podcast today. And uh, for those of you who are maybe familiar with the Old Testament and kind of the academic world of the Old Testament, Dr. Everbeck really won't need much of an introduction, but if you're not familiar with him, he's a professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, he's written many books, many articles, very well known uh, in the field, and we're excited today to have him on to discuss his new book, The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, Reading the Torah in the Light of Christ. So, Dr. Everbeck, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Well, we are too, and, and one of the things that we're passionate about, and this is really kind of the reason for the podcast is... Uh, the, the Old Testament in, in modern times really is, is uh, something that a lot of people either want to ignore or maybe avoid. And what we want to do is, is help especially Christians know the Old Testament is a gift that God's given us. It's something that we really love and cherish. So we're going to dive into the book in just a moment and some of the arguments that you make. But before we do that, would you be willing to share with our listeners a little bit of your story of how you came to love the Old Testament? Well, it, it actually starts with when I came to know the Lord when I was 18 in college. And uh, I uh, had never read the Bible. Uh, and gone to a church that really didn't teach the gospel. And uh, uh, I heard the gospel at a banquet that I went to. They said it was an evangelistic banquet, but I didn't know what evangelism was, so I just really went for the meal. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, a good reason. And uh, and uh, I heard the gospel for the first time that I know of, and I somehow knew that uh, this was what I've been looking for in my life. Mm. And uh, so uh, at that time, uh, I just started reading the Bible, and eventually I did come to know the Lord uh, through faith and trust in Him and Him alone. And then uh, I began studying the Bible, and people were helping me. And uh, I heard that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek. So I assumed Christians learn Greek and Hebrew. So <laughs> I found a school that taught Greek and Hebrew, and I went there. <laughs> and that's nice. where... I uh, uh, I uh, met my wife and so on, and one step led to the other. And eventually, after I was going to be a missionary and a pastor, and, and eventually, um, at one point, and I know exactly where I was, I can see it in my, in my mind, uh, it occurred to me that I wonder, maybe the Lord wants me to help the church with the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And because I saw the problems, and uh, and I uh, I think that was a, a call on my life that I didn't realize all that it was at the time. But that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. And I really enjoy the Hebrew language and the study of the Hebrew Bible and all the contextual world. I've done a lot with ancient Near Eastern languages and 
so on and literatures and uh so it's it's come just kind of grown uh over the years to became a christian so as i went forward in my life, I went backwards in history and got to the oldest language and did my <laughs> dissertation there. <laughs> oh, very nice. Well, thank you for sharing that. And and as we go through this interview, uh, we, we love that personal side. Um, it, we're talking today about your newest work, The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church. And for some, that might seem like an oxymoron, uh, that the Old Testament has <laughs> no usefulness or role in the life of the church. Uh, but of course, we're here because we don't believe that's true. Um, you argue that the law remains a useful and necessary guide for the church today. Y you really give three main theses in your work that you build upon. So as we dive into this, could you first define for our audience what you mean by law? And then could you unpack for us those three main theses of your work? Well, what I mean by law is the Mosaic law that was given in the covenant at Sinai in the book of Exodus and then all the way through to Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by that. Uh, and uh, so it's focused on those Ten Commandments and all the, the law that follows from those principles mm -hmm. uh, in those books in, in the Pentateuch. Um, as for myself, um, I had uh, been accustomed to hearing for a long time uh, that that there's three different parts, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. And I had a far hard time dividing them up that way when I read, read the Bible, both mm -hmm. Old Testament and New. And uh, so uh, I, I, I became interested. I did a lot with the book of Leviticus. And uh, because it just fascinated me, it was so different and, you know, I, and it was so theologically important for redemption and sanctification and all. And mm -hmm. then, uh, but, you know, I got into that and I realized that um, that quote unquote ceremonial law was being used in the New Testament to teach Christian life. Mm -hmm. And I was told that that didn't apply, that Jesus had fulfilled it. Therefore, we we don't need to fulfill it. And there's a, certainly a lot about Jesus fulfilling the sacrificial procedures and so on and so forth. But then they kept on talking about us sacrificing our lives. If we're going to be like Jesus, we, you know, we need to be a sacrifice too. And a lot of different dimensions to that. So I rethought the whole thing and I came up with certain principles that really helped me to sort things out. And those are the, those are the three uh, theses that I have that I unpack in the book. The first is the law is good. It always has been good and it continues to be good. Paul makes this statement several times in all sorts of different places, but I'm thinking specifically of Romans 7, the law is good, it's holy, it's righteous, it's spiritual. comes right out and says that and it is, you know, it's not past tense. It's an ongoing reality. So that's the first thesis. The law is good, even now. And the second is that the law is weak. That's another thing Gospel Paul says in Romans 8. And in it's also in Hebrews and other places you can see this. Mm -hmm. That doesn't stop the law from being good. You've got to keep hanging on to that with the one hand, but you also hang, have to hang on tightly to another thing, and that is that it's weak. The law has was never designed to change a human heart. Mm -hmm. The law just does, doesn't do that. 
It wasn't designed for them. Not even God's law can do that. Mm-hmm. And Paul explains that in Romans 7 and 8, that, that uh, the law, and he uses the example of one of the Ten Commandments, the, the Tenth Commandment, shall not covet, and says that because that law, law is there and I know it, doesn't mean that it don't stop coveting. Mm-hmm. And he, he works through that and talks about it as it's weak, but it's weak because it can't change my flesh, my sinfulness. It can change me into not being sinful, but it can tell me that I am sinful. Okay. And so the, the law is good, but it's also weak. It can't do some of the things that need to be done in order to make me someone who's pleasing to God. So what happened then is I also came to a third thesis, and that's the unity of the law because of the fact that all different parts of the law are used in different, not everything in the law appears again in the New Testament, but all different parts of it, quote unquote, uh, were coming through in ways that the apostles were using in the New Testament to explain what it means to live well for Jesus, to do a good Christian life, what it means to do life with God and with one another well, love God and love your neighbor. And so it gets unpacked in all sorts of different places depending on the situation that's being addressed. So those are the three theses. The the law is good, and it still is good. The law is weak, and it always has been and always will be weak. And it's a unified whole that you can't artificially divide up and end up really understanding what's going on. And so that's where I, these are kind of things developed over time, just reading the text and working in the text and seeing what was going on. And so I saw the problems of this church since before Acts 15. You know what I mean? The whole issue of yeah. what, are we gonna, what are we going to do with the law? We got all these Gentiles here now. What in the world? You know? And so, so it was, it was like, what are we going to do here? And they settled, no, Gentiles don't have to become Jews. They don't have to, uh, live under the law of Moses or anything like that, but they do need to live according to God's standards for life, which are embodied and carried forth and transformed some in the New Testament for the nature of the church. Church is not a nation. Therefore, it's not going to be that way like ancient Israel was and so on and so forth. So I make, um, I let, I try to let the text of the New Testament define for me what it means for the law to come through. And it certainly does. I think those are fantastic points, Dr. Everbeck. And I mean, I'm, I'm thinking through how I hear students wrestling with the law. And I think it's usually because we've forgotten one of these three points, that the law was good and is still good. That the law, we sometimes make it out to try to have done something in the past that it was never intended to do, mm-hmm. but to rightly understand its place in redemptive history. And that the law is a unity because you're right, right? We can go out and see so many people saying, well, you've got this these three parts and only certain parts are operative Mm -hmm. from your experience with your students. What are some of the issues we walk ourselves into when we forget one of these three points? Well, actually that that's a, that's a good, good question because what I've noticed is that uh, some particular approaches to theology say that the law is good, but with the right hand, but then they take it away with the left. Mm. (laughs) And the other way around with some say it's weak, but they don't really believe it. They just 
they, they, they think it's strong, okay? And it can do the kind of things it's not intended to do. And uh, this has been a real problem uh, because uh, people want to say these things, but they don't necessarily want to let them have their effect in how we then read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament together. And uh, so what I see is that then, uh, for example, it's, it, it's common and understandable that people start reading through the Bible in a year and they end up getting stopped at Leviticus. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. No one, everyone hits Leviticus in the reading plan. And they're like, I'm done. I do not want to keep going. Uh, and, uh, but it's really fascinating material to me because it's not part of my world. And I'm mm. fascinated with how their world was. Okay. And, and, and how God was working with them in their ancient times. So uh, as a result, we, uh, we can tend to forget we can talk about holiness, but how is holiness defined? Mm-hmm. We get a lot of that from this material in the Old Testament, uh, all different parts of the law. And so, uh, you know, be holy for I am holy. The first place that's found is in the clean and unclean animal regulations in Leviticus 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so understanding how the law actually works helps us to know then, okay, how does the biblical theology from old to new develop what you do with that and what you don't do with that? Mm-hmm. And there's both. Uh, and so, for example, the the Old Testament regulations, speaking of uh, clean and unclean animals, were meant, according to Leviticus 20, to separate the Jews from the Gentiles in, in their ancient world, around the Gentiles around them so that they wouldn't be corrupted. Well, now you bring that into the New Testament, what would that do? Well, that would create two different churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church, and the wall of partition has been broken down. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the holiness principle is still coming through, but it can't come through in the same way because it would undo what God is doing at that time. Mm -hmm. He was wanting to break down the wall in the New Testament, and he has broken down the wall between Jew and Gentile. And so... It's these kinds of ways the text works with it. We kind of want to, in the book, uh, the first part is is about understanding the law in the first place. Because so many of the problems come from people talking about the law, but not knowing the law to begin with. And therefore kind of wanting to articulate their beliefs about this subject uh, without having the background to do so. And so what happens is when it comes through, there are transformations because we are under the new covenant, but the, what God is teaching in the law is still pertinent to believers in him today. And um, there, there's just a lot of different things like that that come through. And in fact, when Jesus did the two great commandments, Matthew 22 and parallel passages, what he said is love God and love your neighbor. And on these two things hangs the whole law. Well, not many people today read the law that way. That means they read it wrongly. Jesus said so. And so there's a lot of problems in that kind of area. And I observe that a lot in in, in various kinds of ways amongst my students. Well, and Dr. Everbeck, I'm glad, glad you brought up your very last point. Uh, because 
one of the things that we do on this podcast is we want to help people understand their misunderstanding of the law uh, to show that they're rejecting something that really is, in one sense, kind of a figment of their imagination. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, If we truly understand what the law is teaching uh, then we won't, you know, we won't reject it in the same way. Uh, mm-hmm. The two great commandments, those are both joined together by Jesus from the law. And uh, one of the contributions that I really appreciate about your book is, uh, and it's tied to your three theses, but the understanding of the law as spiritual. Um, I, I think sometimes, uh, in, and I'm in a pastoral context, I think sometimes people tend to think of uh, the spirit versus the law. Uh, as opposed to this idea that the New Testament teaches that the Spirit breathed out the law. Yeah. And to your point of of holiness being something that is just as much a New Testament concept as it is an Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament helps us to define still what holiness is, even though we're in a fundamentally different position, no longer mm-hmm. under the Mosaic Law, under the New Covenant. And yet the, those definitions and the guidance of the law is still so necessary. Um, so maybe you could, maybe you could just uh, build a little bit on that. What does it mean that, that the law is spiritual? Um, what does it mean that the law is still useful in guiding us toward Christ-likeness and holiness? Well, one part of that would be to think about what it says in Romans seven fourteen about the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold in bondage to the flesh. Yeah. Uh, which is, uh, flesh is a term that uh, is used to talk about uh, the fact that I'm a sinful person, okay, yeah. from the inside out. <laughs> and uh, so what happens is that uh, as you look at it then, this weakness of the law is really not a problem with the law. It's the problem with me. Okay, that 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 I am. Uh, the problem is that the law has is with changing me. It's not mm-hmm. with the law itself, and and so the. the but it again, it wasn't meant to be, uh, have the strength that only the Holy Spirit has to work in me, to transform me, so I follow mm-hmm. the Spirit rather than the flesh. Well, this is what I mean by spiritual. Okay, mm-hmm. it's 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 something that the Holy Spirit and you mentioned this. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the writing of the law in the first place, mm-hmm. and He's working within me. Receive receive the Holy Spirit through Christ. Mm-hmm. He's working within me in such a way that He brings the law that He inspired in the first place to bear on my life in a purifying spiritual spiritual way uh, that. That works on me in terms of in my human spirit, the spirit of adoption. Mm. Yeah, well, well, thank you for that. And and that's that's such an important point that just to repeat it again, that the law was never intended to do that transformative work from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's something that that we often misunderstand as, as we come to the text, that as you said. Even God's law can't do that. Only the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit can. Um, could, could you spend just a few minutes uh, situating the law for us in, uh, in its own social, literary, narrative context? Can you help us to understand uh, what's going on? And you mentioned Exodus 20 and then onward uh, in terms of the situation of God giving the law to his people. 
uh, how he expected them to apply it and live it out, and, and really what God was trying to do in giving the law in the first place. That's really foundational and important. And where I'd like to start with that is God gave the law to people that he had already delivered. Mm. He'd already shown mm. his grace in delivering them from slavery in Egypt, redeemed them out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. uh, the law was never given so that they would get redeemed. <laughs> okay. Yes. It was given as a result, as a means of guidance to them as redeemed people who had already received God's grace uh, in deliverance. That's the context. And it's really the same pattern as we find in the New Testament. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. You know what I mean? By grace, you are saved through faith. Mm. Uh, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. But then, for God has designed that as those who are in Christ would then be transformed and Therefore, do God's will, okay? And it, it puts it all together. But you understand that the gospel is that way, but so is the Old Testament in terms of this showing of grace and then giving something to the people for guidance about how to live in that grace. Yeah. That is what's going on with the law. It's that guidance for them. As a nation, though, it's a, it's a different kind of covenant community. It's before Christ you know, before Pentecost and all of that, but it was still guidance. And this is important. In Galatians 3, uh, uh, Paul uses the image of the uh, of the Roman and Greek pedagogue, the one who guides the young boy until he gets to a certain age, then he becomes a real heir of the father, you know, that, but, he's, but he's, he's been trained up for it. Well, that's what the law kind of did. It, it trained people in the way God wants them to walk uh, and then historically, he came to Christ and he established it all on that foundation in terms of before uh, and during and after the time of Christ. All is dependent on what God did then in Christ. It's really well put. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So as uh, I know you do this in your book, but... Um, could you maybe walk through an example or two for our listeners of how can we apply some of these principles and as Christians rightly engage with the law today? Because I think we see plenty of poor examples, right, where we'll just proof text a, a, a commandment out of Leviticus and not understand the context. And that nearly always goes very poorly for us. Um, so if that's the wrong way to approach the law, how should we be rightly approaching the law in today's culture? Yeah, that is really the substance of what I try to work out in the book based upon these, what we've been talking about here. Maybe a good place to start with that is with the way Apostle Paul applies, for example, you shall not muzzle an ox while it's threshing in 1 Corinthians 9 and Timothy. And uh, he's using that in a context of if someone's serving you in the church, spiritually uh you need to support them you know you need to to to, to you know uh provide for them so they can devote themselves to that and uh he uses this ox law and people aren't especially into oxen today but, <laughs> but the point is not as much <laughs> the point is that uh in that world an ox would walk where they'd put the grain so they could knock the grain off of the of the stems of the grain. And uh, and 
they might muzzle the ox because the ox is going to want to eat the grain. It's just, it's food, right? Mm -hmm. Well, but if you muzzle that ox, what are you doing? You're actually torturing uh, the ox. It's going to be straining, trying to get a mouthful of grain, that kind of thing. And it's walking in food. You're, walk, you're having it walk in food and tell it not to eat. And so uh, what's happening is that he takes that from the Old Testament and says, don't torture your ministers. You know what I mean? Don't torture the people who are serving you in the Lord. Uh, it, it, it's just plain mean. It's a mean thing to do. And like it would be muscling ox that's threshing. And uh, so he, that's an example of how the Apostle Paul brings it in, in various ways. Apostle Peter does the same kinds of things with, uh, well, for example, in 1 Peter 1, be holy for I am holy. And then he talks about how we are to be holy. And he talks about, in verse 21, he talks about, um, since you have purified your souls, for a sincere love of the brethren. Now, purity terminology is all over mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, not just in Leviticus, but elsewhere too, but purified, okay? But here, what he's doing is he's talking about, and that's got to do with physical purifications, which are a natural part of the physical, visible presence of God in the tabernacle, okay? Mm -hmm. So you, you, the, the presence of God is physical, right? Well, if it's a mm -hmm. spiritual presence, the Holy Spirit in us, then we need to purify our souls, okay, for a sincere love of the brethren. So why do we purify our souls? So that we can love well. It really goes back to bringing those same well-known regulations from the Old Testament to some of us, bring them across in, in a way that corresponds to the nature of what it means to live well in the New Covenant context. And the apostles do that regularly. We've got to remember that their Bible that they were using was the Old Testament, whether in Hebrew or in the Greek translation. And what they were doing was taking that and preaching the gospel from there and teaching the church from there. And that's how we got the New Testament. So they, they use all these different various kinds of regulations but they're not trying to just sit down and let's work through the laws piece by piece here and you know articulate they give us all sorts of examples of that that we can use to help us to do the same thing in ways that would be pleasing god and appropriate for the new covenant community do you think there's some intentionality in the fact that they didn't go law by law here's how it transfers over but instead give us kind of these these principles these guidelines of here's how God's law helps us understand how you live well. And since it's not spelled out, that is now having to draw us in, that we can't just mechan uh, mechanistically go, okay, I don't need to think about it. It's just a checklist. But instead, I'm invited in to really consider God's word, to seek after him and to apply it. Do you think that was intentional that they didn't give us yeah. kind of a one-for-one -one on how it maps? Yes, I think it's because they're teaching people in a particular situation. And they're bringing it to bear in that situation. They're not trying to articulate everything. They're trying to use what is clearly the word of God. Okay. And they're trying to bring it on through in ways that correspond to the need in the particular situation that they're writing to. And uh, that's true of the gospels. They're written to particular groups, just like the epistles and so on. And the point is 
that uh, they're they're using it as they go. That's the kind of thing. And really, that's what we need to be doing, too, using it as we go. But that means you got to be pretty saturated with it. You need to you really need to know it or you'll have all sorts of misunderstanding, which that's the problem that the book is really designed to try to give a way into. Uh, but there, there's no there's no option other than just know it. You know what I mean? To, to really be a student of God's word and saturated with it in such a way that it comes to mind because that's what you're thinking when you're living life. Mm-hmm. Which, Dr. Everbeck, we want to be respectful of your time. And so I'm going to get to uh, our last of, of two questions. But before I do that, I, I want to just commend a couple of the things that you mentioned in the book that I think will be interesting to our readers. One of them is, is that you point out that in the law itself, uh, the situation or the context is taken into account so that there's development even within the law. Mm-hmm. Um, as the people continue from Sinai to the wilderness and then before they go into the promised land, there's actually changes that in one sense accommodate for the needs that they have. Uh, and so mm-hmm. in some sense, we see a parallel to that uh, in the new covenant because we have a new situation with Jew and Gentile. Uh, but then also, as as we think about the law, I, I know that I have a lot of people who will say to me, well, Jesus came to fulfill the law and by that, they, they kind of mean he came to land the plane. You know, he came mm-hmm. to, to sort of cast it into oblivion, uh, you know, to, to maybe over-exaggerate. Uh, but can you tell us, what do you believe Jesus meant when he said that he came to fulfill the law? What does he mean by that? Yeah, that's the famous passage in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Well, there's um, an exegetical uh, discussion there about fulfill. Uh, some people take that to mean he fulfilled it in the sense like he came as a, a, a child born of a virgin, you know, like in the beginning of Matthew and mm-hmm. so on from uh, Isaiah 7. But uh, the fact of the matter is those fulfillment formulas that run through, and I'm using the gospel of Matthew for the moment here, uh, that fulfillment formula is always in the passive form of fulfill that it might be fulfilled, that he was mm-hmm. born of a virgin and came in, in, in that way. Mm-hmm. And so it's used in the passive, but there's only a couple times in the Gospel of Matthew where the active form is used, and this 5, Matthew 5, 17, is one of those active uses of that verb uh, okay, to fulfill. And uh, in those contexts, when it's used actively, it means to actually fill it up, do it, you know, this is what he's trying to say here is I've come to show you how to actually do what the law tells you to do. And this is what he's getting at there. And he says that anybody that uh, pushes back against this is going to be least in the kingdom of heaven, you know, and, and the one who really follows through and lives it out and, 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 and shows the effect of God's word in their life, particularly the law and the prophets, he says. Then what happens is that you uh, you are going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and then he contrasts. He goes on and contrasts that with the teachers of law in his day, and uh, called well, the antitheses. Uh, they say this. This is what I say, and then he speaks very authoritative about that. So that I think one of the things that helps me with it is to understand he does teach that we are supposed to live according 
to the patterns that are in the law. Okay, he teaches that, but he also lives it. So if you don't know how it's taught, look out, Jesus lived. And, and, and he, 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 he is our example. We can look at him and see what he did, see what he means. And he unpacks these things in teachings as well as in how he lives and how he teaches others to live. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Very well put. Before we let you go today, uh, what's what's next on the horizon for you? What's your next project and how can our listeners and watchers uh, find your work? Well, I, uh, I'm i uh, doing a lot of writing right now uh, on uh, the book of Genesis. I've been working on, on, there's all sorts of, as you know, historical critical discussions mm-hmm. about how it got written and so on and so forth. I've been, been reworking that whole thing to understand, okay, I don't believe in this JDP theory and different kinds of theories about the composition in critical studies. But then if I don't believe that, how do I believe it was written? And so I've been working on that because I'm working on a commentary on the book of Genesis uh, and uh, need to get that commentary going more and more based upon understanding what's going on with Genesis. The critical discussions of the Bible where, you know, everything's late and so on and so forth. Um, they are very misleading, uh, but the result is that they push us on certain questions. And my approach is to let them push me, but let mm-hmm. me push me in the directions that the text actually takes it. And uh, so I've been doing a lot of work with that and with the ancient Near Eastern world of the earliest parts of the Old Testament and so on. And um, writing articles and so on. And I'm also doing some writing, continuing with the book thing. I'm doing a special thing on on uh, uh, spirit of adoption in Romans 8 and trying to unpack that more fully uh, for what it means about how our lives actually get changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm I'm working on those combinations of things right now. But I would say the major project is getting a commentary written on the book of Genesis. Well, that sounds exciting and uh, put me down for when that comes out, because uh, like you, I mean, I I think critical scholarship pushes us, but I don't agree with their conclusion. So I would love to see some excellent scholarship and uh, how we respond to those. So thank you so much for that, uh, Dr. Everback. Uh, His latest book, The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church listeners, a link to it we'll put in the Uh, show notes for this episode. So please feel free to go check it out to go see just the quality and the depth of really solid scholarship that is out there to help you and I better understand the Old Testament. So Dr. Everbeck, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate your time. And listeners, we hope you have a wonderful week. And as always, stay cool and stay old. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) 